0: Hey there, everybody. This is episode 12. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Scott Willis, and this is the podcast where we talk not just about movies, but the stories behind actually getting them made. Now, I know I say I'm super excited about pretty much every movie that I do on this show, but this one holds a special place in my heart. 1980s Caddyshack marks, if not the turning point, then the tipping point of a new generation of comedy. It was a film that, by all traditional measures, should have been dead 10 times over. But here it still stands today. But of course, before we get into it, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead. This is the Movie Brewer Podcast. My beer this week is Total Consciousness, a New England IPA from Nightshift Brewing. Now, Nightshift is a very, very dear brewery to me, probably one of my top breweries ever. Uh, it was founded in 2012 by Rob Burns, Michael Mara, and Michael Oxen, and Nightshift is so named because those three friends used to chase their home brewing passions late into the evenings. Since their founding, they have expanded into one of the more notable craft breweries in Massachusetts, and part of that expansion is the Lovejoy Wharf Innovation House, part of downtown Boston, where brewer Anna Job brews all kinds of different experimental beers. Uh, And Total Consciousness is one of those. I have it in front of me here. It is a 6% alcohol by volume, and to give a little background, Anna was one of the early, I suppose the phrase would be early adopters of Night Shift Brewing. She volunteered to help them out when they were first starting out and slowly grew in their ranks as they expanded. And she likes to experiment with different ingredients. She's very loyal to local New England ingredients. And she creates a seemingly endless array of exciting new strange beers that we can all enjoy and this total consciousness is no exception. So I'm gonna crack this open here and see how we do. All right, so right off the bat, it's a pretty hazy beer. Um, You can't really see through it. You know, it's um, a light yellow to golden color I'd say uh, a fair amount of head maybe two maybe even three fingers worth going on here. Aroma wise it's very aroma wise I feel like there's some hints of citrus in there maybe it it smells very light and and airy um, which I don't know we'll see let's see what it tastes like. Oh. That's very interesting. The initial start of that is uh, very fruity, very citrusy. It does have a follow-up of a a bit of a bitter taste. So it's kind of a bit of a roller coaster ride there. Um, You don't end up where you you think you would from the beginning. I'm going to take another sip here. I can definitely smell and taste. I want to say pineapple in there. I don't have a specific breakdown of, of what this of how this beer was brewed, um, such is the case with the Lovejoy series at Night Shift, but I'm really enjoying this. It's very light and it's it's a, it's a nice beer to sip on. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Our movie this week, as I said, is Caddyshack. It's hard really to do an adequate summary of the movie Caddyshack, but I will try my damnedest. Danny Noonan, played by Michael O'Keefe, is a high school grad who spends his days caddying at the snobby Bushwood Country Club. Danny tries to position himself to win the club's illustrious caddy scholarship, all while trying to navigate the endless array of wild characters that make up the club's membership. Now that by no means does any kind of justice to the plot of Caddyshack. But that's what I've got for you now. To go into the history of Caddyshack, you really have to start with the origins of National Lampoon in the 1970s. National Lampoon, which had started as a parody newspaper, is credited by many as the starting point for almost all modern comedy. Harvard Friends' Doug Keeney, Henry Beard, and Robert Hoffman started the newspaper in 1969, and it grew like wildfire. I don't want to get too deep into the history of National Lampoon because it is very rich and very all-encompassing history, but to give you a sense of the scope, National Lampoon is responsible for the origins of SNL. And all of the OG names that you know from that show, names like Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. And National Lampoon is instrumental in the beginnings of what would eventually become the film of Caddyshack. The actual history of Caddyshack starts with three men, Doug Keeney, Brian Doyle Murray, and Harold Ramis. Brian Doyle Murray, and this will come into play later, is actually the older brother of Bill Murray, So Keeney and Ramis had written 1978's Animal House, the first feature film that National Lampoon had ever undertaken, and that film really changed the game for comedy in Hollywood and opened all kinds of doors for those involved. Caddyshack, the film itself, uh, was written over the course of nearly a year and was based heavily on the experiences Doyle, Murray, and his brothers had had caddying as teenagers. And when I say heavily based, I mean heavily. The original script came in at a whopping 200 pages. Now, for those that don't know, the standard rule of thumb in film scripts is one page usually equals about one minute of screen time. So imagine what really a 200-minute Caddyshack would have been like. That 200-page script was very, very different from the final one that we would get. It was focused heavily on the caddies and their relationships, and the members of the club itself were kind of secondary supporting roles. Also, there were no gophers, and there was no Carl Spackler. So obviously the script was cut down, reworked and reworked, but Harold Ramis came up in the Second City Improv Group in Chicago. It was his intention from the beginning to have a free-floating script that was open and able to work in an improvisational atmosphere. Now, as I said, Ramus had worked as a writer on Animal House and ever since that production had wanted more control and knew that whatever project he worked on next, he would want to direct. And because of the success of Animal House, as they were gearing up for Caddyshack, they were able to dictate a lot of the terms about how the film was made. They teamed with the newly formed Orion Pictures, uh, which was a boon for that company because they had just started out and they had just snagged two of the hottest writers in town. Everyone wanted to see what the sophomore offering for the guys that did Animal House was going to be. Orion was very willing and eager almost to let Harold Ramis direct, even though it was something he'd never done before. And, you know, that can that can be a risk. The one big insistence that they had was that the team had to bag a big star for the film. So let's, with that, start talking about casting. First off, we have Chevy Chase. Now, the role of Ty Webb was specifically written with him in mind. At the time, he was one of the biggest names in Hollywood. His one season on SNL had seen to that, and Chevy Chase was the big name that Ramis and the writers were betting on landing when they were talking to Orion Pictures. They knew him from National Lampoon, they had good working relationships, and he was a big enough name to draw people in on his own. We also get Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield was a name that had been around for a long time, but had only really just started getting some actual traction. He'd been doing a lot of bits on Johnny Carson, and his comedy was really starting to take off. Now, Dangerfield in that capacity was great, but also still a big risk because he'd never really done a movie before. And Remus and the team, they didn't know how he would react. If his stand-up personality translated onto film, it would be fantastic. But you always run that risk that they're just not going to be able to make that jump. Then there's Ted Knight. Ted Knight plays Judge Smales and was most known at the time for his role on The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Ted Knight is a comedy force in his own right, but from a bit of a different generation than the rest of his cast and his director. Knight was the consummate professional and often had a hard time with the free-flowing improv of his co-stars. He was always showing up on time, he always knew his lines, he always hit his marks, just the consummate professional. And he often had a hard time with the free-flowing improv of his co-stars. Shooting on TV, like he did for so many years on The Mary Tyler Moore Show, requires very fast, very precise acting, especially when you're putting out an episode every week. And then there's Bill Murray. The younger brother to the writer Brian Doyle Murray, Bill was no small name of his own at this point. He was a star on the rise. He had taken Chevy Chase's place on SNL, and just finished one of his first feature films, Meatballs, which Ramis had also co-written. Murray was eager to sign on because of all the people in the world, he looked up to Ramis and Keeney more than really anyone else. Doug Keeney had brought him into the National Lampoon family, and Murray was more than happy to repay the favor with his budding star power. Despite the fact that he and Chevy Chase had had a very checkered history, there had been some conflict about how SNL had been left by Chevy Chase, etc., Murray signed on, and signed on in a role of a character that hadn't really even been written yet. As I said, Carl Spackler did not appear in the original script for Caddyshack. So we get Bill Murray, and in total, because of his schedule and his need to report back to New York for the next season of SNL, he only is scheduled for six days on set. We'll come back to that later. We also get Michael O'Keefe in the lead role of Danny, a relatively unknown at the time uh, who grew, (laughs) I will say, grew immensely over the course of the filming. We get Sarah Holcomb as Maggie O'Hooligan, who... Ends up not being a huge character in the film, but in the original script was a much larger player. Ramus and the team knew Sarah from her role in Animal House. She was also, at the time, dating Brian Doyle Murray, and she originally joined the cast in the role of Lacey Underall. However, not long after that, she decided that she liked the role of Maggie better and switched to that role. I guess you get that kind of leeway when you're dating one of the producers. The role of Lacey Underall ended up going to the young actress, Cindy Morgan, who had been their choice until Sarah Holcomb decided that she wanted the role. And then when she switched back out, they went back to Cindy and said, hey, I know this is a back and forth, but we want to cast you in this role. And this was indeed her first feature film. So there's your cast. With the cast locked in, Production begins on September 5th, 1979 at the Rolling Hills Country Club in Davie, Florida. Now, in the original script, the Bushwood Country Club is set in Illinois, and Rolling Hills was selected as the location because it was seemingly the only country club in Florida completely devoid of palm trees and could maybe possibly pass for Illinois. So as production begins, it's clear that this would be no ordinary film shoot. They had no locked script on day one. The film was in a constant state of change from the start. Sometimes scenes were written just before they were shot. Sometimes they weren't written at all, and the main actors were just given a couple of notes and told to go with it. Uh, A love triangle between the caddies and Danny's quest for a scholarship were still the main focus of the script when they began, but the work and the comedy of Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield quickly started stealing the show, and more and more scenes were being shot with those characters. It's interesting to note that Rodney Dangerfield thought that he was bombing the whole film. There was a lot of pressure on him. As I said, this was his first feature film, and he wanted to do well. And as a stand-up comic, he had always judged how well he was doing by the audience's reaction. And when you're on a film set, there's no audience to react. He spoke to Ramus at one point and said, Hey, like this isn't working. I'm bombing out there all the time. Like no one's reacting to which Ramus said, what are you talking about? Everyone's going crazy for everything you're doing, but they can't laugh because it will ruin the take. And from there, Dangerfield kind of found a, a, a more confident rhythm. Chevy Chase was also proving why he was a star, constantly pushing the less experienced cast members to keep up with him. He and Cindy Morgan actually had several issues with each other. Morgan believed that he was too unpredictable and had a very hard time keeping up with him in the scenes when he was improvising wildly. When he was improvising wildly, the tension in their romantic scene together is very real and very close to bubbling over the surface. When it came to Bill Murray's scenes, as I said before, they only had him for about six days, and they really worked him to the bone. Ravis started out by giving him the Dalai Lama speech, which had originally belonged to a different actor who didn't quite have the experience to pull it off. He was a shell veteran who was an actor but didn't have the gravitas to really deliver on the whole speech. So the speech went to Murray, and this was one of the first things that they filmed with him, and he really just knocked it out of the park. The pitchfork that he's holding to the other actor's neck is entirely a Bill Murray choice. It is absolutely real, and Murray was pushing harder and harder, take after take, disturbing for the actor, though originally Bill Murray's first thought for this scene was a scythe. If I'm considering an option between a Pitchfork and a Scythe, I guess I go Pitchfork? I don't know, that's a weird prompt. Bill Murray meshed incredibly well with the overall improv nature of the film. For the iconic Cinderella story monologue, all it said in the script was, Carl hits flowers. And Murray was prompted by Harold Ramis with simply, hey, do you ever talk to yourself while you're doing something? and Murray was able to extrapolate that entire speech from that simple prompt. About halfway through Bill Murray's days of shooting, it was realized that the film's two biggest stars, Murray and Chase, never had a scene together. So Harold Ramis and the producers and Bill and Chevy sat down, pounded out a rough outline for a screen, and just shot it a couple days later. That was the kind of flexibility that this film was all about, that it was how it existed, that was how it got made. So then, after the six days, they wrap out Bill Murray, he goes back to New York, having delivered what I consider one of the most memorable performances and all fair character that wasn't even in the original shooting script. So shortly after Bill Murray wraps, they film the final scenes of the country club, and that's the large explosion that tips Danny Noonan's ball into the hole the production was less than forthright with the owners of the club the explosion scene was something that had been in the script from the beginning but they had always pitched it as something that would probably get dropped as they went on they weren't fully committed to it you know explosions I don't know that's expensive But in reality, it's something that was dead set. It's the culmination of so many storylines in the script. It was never going to change. The day they went to shoot it was the last day they were shooting at the country club. And a couple of the executive producers took the owners of the country club on a cruise to thank them for their cooperation, You know, thank them for letting them shoot there, all that kind of stuff. While at the same time, Ramis and the crew we're back at the golf course blowing shit up. When they set off the explosions, they actually were much larger than any of the cast or the crew expected them to be. They were so large and so unexpected that some planes flying overhead actually called into emergency services to report an accident. They thought a plane had crashed or something had happened on the golf course when really it was just the film. Um, And then just like that, 11 weeks after they started shooting on November 19th, production wrapped. Before I move on, I do need to make a quick note about drug use on this film. Caddyshack to this day stands as one of the high watermarks for drug use on a film set. Cocaine and weed were rampant. Executive producer Doug Keeney took it upon himself to make sure that everyone on the set had what they needed. There were stories of crew members asking to get their per diems, meaning the money they got to buy food and or whatnot, asking to get that in cash so that they could pay the local drug dealers for more cocaine. There were stories about Rodney Dangerfield dragging crew members back to his hotel room to do cocaine and listen to records of his stand-up to tell them what he thought. It was just literally what fueled this production. The only ones to not partake were Ted Knight, who who was too health-oriented. He was more known for making green smoothies than doing cocaine. And also Harold Ramis himself, although his absence was really only due to the dedication he had in making sure the film kept going. During the wrap party, once everything had finished, he partied so hard that he had to be physically carried to his bed. So as I said, they wrapped on November 19th, 1979, and went into post-production, where they had some issues. The film had a problem with streamlining. The first cut of this film clocked in at more than four hours. The love triangle that was supposed to be happening between Danny and Maggie and one of the other caddies wasn't working. It was dull compared to the scenes with Rodney Dangerfield or Chevy Chase, and a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor. And when you drop that out, it really gave the film an issue of continuity and through line. There was no overarching story that carried the scenes together. After some disastrous cuts, Ramis and the producers reached out to editor Ralph Winters, who is, for all intents and purposes, a legend. He was best known for editing things like Ben-Hur or the original Pink Panther. And although he didn't quite understand what exactly was going on, he did have some good overall technical notes to give and moonlighted on the film for a while and was able to start bringing things together. When he moved on to another project, he suggested another editor that he thought might be able to pick up where he left off, and that editor was David Bretherton. Bretherton and Ramus worked closely on getting a rough, solid edit done, but something was still missing. And that's when producer John Peters had an idea. And that idea was, what if the gopher that Carl Spackler is chasing becomes the through line of the story that we're looking for. And that kind of gave them not really a story-based through line, but something that could tie all these different scenes together. Something that could say, hey, yeah, the gopher's here, the gopher's there. So they worked the script a little bit and they set up some additional shooting with a second unit based in LA and commissioned the creation of an animatronic gopher and shot a ton of footage of it existing in its tunnel in an attempt to sort of build a story around this gopher that's tormenting the country club. And it kind of worked. The gopher gave it the tie that they were looking for, and shortly thereafter, they were locked. So Caddyshack opened on July 25th, 1980, On its opening weekend, it did $3.1 million, far from the Animal House-esque box office smash that Orion Pictures had been hoping for. It scored very middle-of-the-road with a lot of critics, and for all the reasons that they'd been struggling with, it seemed the gopher wasn't quite enough to pull it all together. A lot of the critics seemed to think that Ramis had been given too much freedom with the project and not enough oversight, and that's... Honestly, kind of what happened. But there's also something to be said for the fact that Caddyshack had to deal with a lot of other major contenders in the summer of 1980. That was the year that we also saw the release of The Blues Brothers and, more importantly, Airplane. Two comedy powerhouses in their own right. All in all, Caddyshack would only gross $39.8 million in its theatrical run. Not great, but not bad when you consider that its original budget was only $6 million. It went a little bit over that with their reshoots, etc. But, yeah, not too bad. And of course, we all know that Caddyshack would go on to be considered one of the greatest comedies ever, one of the most quotable comedies ever. Carl Spackler, like I said, is one of Bill Murray's greatest all-time characters. And the film enabled Harold Ramis to go on and make films like Ghostbusters and National Lampoon's Vacation and Groundhog Day all in all not a bad legacy. So that's what I got. I'm going to bring it back in here quickly for my quick facts and then we'll we'll bring it home. We're going to start out with the fact that Rodney Dangerfield was so unaccustomed to film sets that when Harold Ramis called action for the first time, he didn't know that meant go. Ramis explained, and they went again. He called action, and still Dangerfield didn't go. When Ramis waved him down, Rodney said, oh, now you want me to do my bit? Ramis said yes, and he nailed the performance perfectly. So from that point on, every time he was directing Dangerfield, Harold Ramis would say, okay, go do your bit, and Rodney would go. Moving on, the first shot that Cindy Morgan filmed was her walking across the pool area and climbing up onto the diving board. Now, without her glasses, Cindy Morgan is legally blind, and she had to do that whole scene without being able to see where she was going. And just to really paint the picture, she's wearing very high heels in that scene, climbs up a very high ladder, and dives off a diving board. Now, because of her sight issues, she actually didn't do the dive. They used a stunt double, but still... That's a lot. The Kenny Loggins song, I'm Alright, was specifically written for this film. Loggins wrote it in one night after being shown a screener of the film. Also, shortly before principal photography began, a Category 5 hurricane swept through Florida and caused widespread damage to the country club where they were set to film. The titular Caddy Shack that they had built was destroyed and had to be rebuilt again afterwards. And finally, as I said, Caddyshack had an opening weekend of $3.1 million. It opened second in the box office behind The Empire Strikes Back, which is still a juggernaut in its 10th week. So there you go. Caddyshack. I hope that wasn't rambling too much in there. I'm going to bring it back real quick to my total consciousness. Um, Overall, this is aging pretty well. It actually has a really nice balance between the fruitiness and the bitter. Um, when I first sipped it, I was a little bit worried that it might teeter back and forth too aggressively, but it's it's well balanced. And I give a lot of props to, uh, to Anna for this one. I will say, as I said at the top, Night Shift Brewery is a very dear place in my heart. I went and bought this beer after the Massachusetts shut down for the uh the COVID 19 pandemic and it was very surreal walking in and buying this beer at a distance and i give props to the owners of night shift for how they've handled their situation and i hope they'll power through and i hope when we all get to the other side of this they'll still continue producing great beer um Yeah, I feel like I keep ending these on that odd COVID-19 note, but with everything that's going on, I'm still happy to be drinking some fantastic craft beer. And that will bring us home for episode 12. Uh, As always, I hope you'll hit that like or subscribe button. Uh, Be sure to check me out on social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at The Movie Brewer. You can also check out my movie reviews on Letterboxd and my beer reviews on Beer Advocate. And I hope you'll tune in next time for one of my favorite, I won't say musical, but musically-based films. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrew Scott Willis, and this has been the Movie Brewer Podcast.